When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. Today's October 15th, 2020. The deep breath before the, the plunge here in a couple mm. weeks. Um, I guess that's our lead off is we have a bonus, a midweek episode on the calendar to release the day after the election. Um we find ourselves wanting to know <laughs> what kinds of content might be interesting to you there. We're fairly flexible. We don't know what kind of content we yeah. would like to to listen to. We need to make it before the election, yep. but here we are, Rebecca. Do yeah. we have ideas to float or what do my, we do? I don't know. My notes say something feel good in all caps. And yep. yeah, since we usually record those episodes about a week early, we'll be recording it without any knowledge of, you know, what mm. November 4th is going to feel like. So that is a weird exercise. I was thinking, I mean, just for pure feel goodness, we could book nerd movie hour, you've got mail, or we could just decide it doesn't even need to be bookish. And we could book nerd yeah. movie hour when Harry met Sally, because we both love it. <laughs> I was I had dead poets on my list of like, there's not an adaptation, mm. you know, I I I haven't done my fall rewatch of Dead Poets, which I okay. usually do. I haven't, I haven't watched anything um, really of late. I'm not sure. It's not. We're not quite ready for best books of the year kind of a situation. We could do an ask us anything, like take listener no, questions if we wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Dead so Poets podcast, might be some good catharsis. Yeah, but see that that that's not as feel good as you think, right? That's I'm true. I'm not sure. That's true. I'm not it's sure. A, that is, it's a it's a bummer. My kids and I, Michelle and I, um, really like the new uh, the Ford vs Ferrari movie, you know. But it has oh, kind yeah. of a bummer ending too, and mm. so we've watched it with the kids a couple of times. We've kind of put it on. We're doing other stuff, but we we turn it off when um, the 24 hours. Of Le- <laughs> spoiler alert: we turn it off when the 24 hours of Le Mans is over. They don't know what the last five minutes of. They're gonna be like they're gonna be like 18 in college and like watching with friends. Like, <laughs> what? What is this bootleg? This isn't right. It's like my commitment to the first hour of A Star is Born before any oh, of the depressing stuff that's happens. That's a great question. That's that's a really good one. Um, so I don't know. Like we could do a themed listy kind of episode of some kind, you know, like our yeah. favorite X books or something like that. If you've got ideas, um, is there anything we don't want to do especially? I'm trying to I don't we... want to talk about explicitly political stuff. Like we did have on our list of book nerd movie hour options just for doing someday. We had election, the Tom Parada book and then the Reese Witherspoon no. film, but I'm not all ready the for president's that right men. Now. No. Yeah, someday no. all the president's men we can do something <laughs> like that. Yeah, but not right now. Um I'm not really a holiday a uh, Halloween movie person so i don't have a bunch of halloween movies that we could just have fun mm. with yeah I mean, uh, i'm either. a christmas movies i have a few that i like um i don't know so anyway podcast at bookriot.com uh you can email us there uh, let's take a sponsor break and have some more listener feedback today's episode is brought to you by greenleaf book group 
No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Um, Sarah writes in, they say, uh, this is, I'm still getting lots of interesting half-baked idea feedback. (laughs) This is in response to the, our ambivalent hands about book-focused dating apps, Mm. right? People said, Mm -hmm. Um, and Sarah said that they met their partner, uh, current partner, sounds like committed partnership of some kind. Back in the before times, I'm reading verbatim now, The Strand used to have a, a re-dating event, which was speed dating for people who love books. Basically, it's the same thing as regular speed dating, but it takes place at a bookstore, and all the questions are book themes. I ended up talking to my now partner, who I immediately knew was the cutest person in the room anyway, oh. and we realized we had met earlier at a publishing happy hour. I like to think that two publishing professionals who meet at a bookstore during a dating event are the perfect <laughs> spokespeople for a bookish dating app, so maybe... It's worth a try. Thank you, Sarah, for that. I think you're the exception that proves the rule. You're publishing mm. people in the strand. Like, I don't know, right? Is this generally applicable? I but mean, really, it's like sending I don't know. in ringers. <laughs> yeah, sending in ringers. I think that that's that got you in the door to the speed dating event. Was it, you know, I don't know. May, maybe that's it's the thin end of the, the wedge, right? It's the thing that got you over to putting yourself out there in that particular situation. Are you more amenable to people who like books as committed partners? I tend not to have a a very strong opinion that X quality of a committed partner is meaningful for any particular, you know, it it can be variable, right? We're all different pies and we have levers that go up and down and it's about the right mix. That's kind of where I am. Rebecca, what do you think about this? I guess, is this evidence for 
or against I the utility of a know. dating app? I don't know. I did get a few DMs from folks who were from women, uh, particularly who were like, there are a lot of men in the world of dating who don't read books. And so like one service that uh. the book that the reading exclusive dating app would, you know, it would filter out the people who aren't interested in books at all. Um, mm. And with whom you couldn't like even have a conversation about books over the first date. So I, I can understand that like it would serve that sort of gating purpose that mm-hmm. a re-dating event at the Strand would serve as well. Um, so if you really Wait, wait, care, can I stop you right there? Can I stop uh-huh. you right there? I also have seen what men list as their favorite books. <laughs> I, I guess I'm of the point that like, if it's, you know, I'm sorry, if it's The Fountainhead and Bukowski... Right. I'm not sure that if, maybe it's a secondary screen on there. Reading books, I don't... I love I mean, books. I do, you love books. Yeah, I think they're as virtuous as any other hobby or yeah, cultural pursuit. I, I know some folks who, and I, I said this to a couple of the people who messaged me in response, that like I know some folks who use this as a screen out sort of early in the mm-hmm. online dating process. Of like once they've matched with someone and they're doing the chatting thing, they you know start to talk about books or reading or what interests. And they're looking for not just do you read books, but right, like are you a 40-year-old man who's listing Catcher in the Rye as the best thing you've ever read? Like that might be a concern. Tough. Tough. Right. Uh, or are there no women or no people of color? on Mm. your reading list and what how do you respond to you know having questions asked about that i think there's a lot of places like you can get to a lot of other like sort of personal values and character traits through the filter of book related questions but i don't think that book related questions are the only way to get to those things so I, i don't know but i'm very happy for this listener and her partner that sounds like a really excellent meet cute yes i i like it a great deal i hope there is a in some future version of what's it, the I Love New York. Do you ever see that movie? It's like the vignettes. There's I Love Berlin, I Love Paris. Oh, like yeah. These vignettes about the city. I very much would like your story to be in one of those, or in one of those modern, if we ever get another season of Modern Love. Modern Love, people, yeah, that would be great. More people of color and, and um, mm-hmm. um, a, a more spectrum of uh, orientations and identities of all kinds in that. I would like your story, Sarah. Pitch that. Write a little essay. Pitch it to Amazon and Modern Love. and I would definitely... Watch that. Uh, more listener feedback about half-baked ideas. Have at least one convert to the great Cambrian explosion of tortilla shapes. Bring it on <laughs> um, here. Um, I'm so un- glad you got some validation finally. Unfortunately for me, along with it, we had someone that says, why would you put your cream in the coffee first? Oh, wait, I do it. And then, oh, wait, it is the right and one true way. So there's quite a journey here. Yes. <laughs> um, from uh, This is uh, Jennifer. Uh, who who wrote our Jen, pardon me, that wrote in. And then the last one, she said the hi-ho idea, you know, the, the culture mm-hmm. matching, um, gave her some strong live journal nostalgia because I guess <laughs> you could list your hundred interests and click a button to see the people with the most interests in common with you. It's sort of a side oh, door wow. feature of live journal. Someone else wrote in, I don't have it right in front of me. I'm so sorry to say that there is this app called Likewise that's hmm. a recommendation um, format. Uh, where you so if you like this, like that, but it doesn't have that other humans. You're sort of using AI to match with other humans. It's more of a, I, I don't know where the recommendations come from, I guess, but it's pretty much if the, it's a conditional if this, then that. Okay. Um, Dana wrote in with some feelings about the tortilla Cambrians exploding <laughs> and said, the problem is that tortillas are round, therefore limits the options. So this I have to say, tortillas can be any shape. 
Yes. We and can make them into any shape. Uh, you can make any shape of like cookie cutter functionally to use yes. inside a round tortilla. Right. Um, hmm. A couple of people did say we do have we do have Tito scoops. Are you aware of we those? Do. I am. Am I am I aware of those? There's some <laughs> in my cupboard right now. But this is what I'm saying. Someone was like. That's just one, though. That we've, we're almost there. You've almost got it. We've almost but it's got like, it. But that shape serves an actual purpose because it, you can more easily access your salsa or guacamole or whatever with the scoop shape than just with the regular tortilla chip shape. Yeah. But I don't need like a rigatoni-shaped tortilla chip. There's, it doesn't do any good. I've got news for you. You don't need rigatoni-shaped rigatoni. You don't need it. <laughs> Same reason. Anyway. Tubular uh, pasta makes better bakes, Jeff. You don't know because you don't have it of what better, <laughs> what rigatoni tortilla chips do. Yeah, I do. Takis. They exist. They're just, unfl- they're flavored. Uh, more tortilla chip support. One was saying that what if they were shaped, like, tortillas shaped like checks? That oh. waffly weirdness would make for a great chip to guac ratio. Square tortillas in general make some great interesting casseroles and nacho dips. Bow tie chips might actually be ideal for <laughs> scooping. So much potential that we have been denied, Emmy. Oh, and we're just thank mapping you so much. We're just mapping existing pasta shapes onto tortilla chips, and it seems to me then like we all need to free our minds. We all need to <laughs> free your mind, and the dip will follow. Don't get me started on bread. <laughs> oh my god, do you have problems with the shape of bread? I think problems is strong. Problems is strong. <laughs> I just feel like I learn something new about you every day. Jeff. Problems. Look, it's quarantine. It's just me looking around. <laughs> just looking around. At all the things that could be optimized with different shapes. Here's a here's a some feedback that relates to a blast from the past. The, this caught my eye initially, um, just because I was like, oh yes. Um, the the subject line is we're having a Circe moment in comics. Hmm. So Christina writes in about a, basically, there's this new She-Hulk omnibus, which is a, a big collection of comics for those of you who don't know, and they very rarely are discounted at all, let alone at any price. She thinks um, that Barnes & Noble accidentally punched in the wrong number, oh. so it's 60% off the cover price, Hey, and Amazon and Target have now matched it. Um, and she's, yes, she's she's pre-ordered it. And right now, it's the very weird situation where on Amazon, the soft cover uh, is $28, and the hardcover is about the same for pre-order. Wow. Um, so anyway, I was like, I love that people are looking at this, and they're seeing weird pricing anomalies, reminding, remembering old shows we do, and then emailing, what else do we want than that? Pricing <laughs> anomalies for the win. I, I wonder if that'll still be up even by the time the show airs. Yeah, I know like, it'd be really. I didn't. I didn't go and look at it to be honest with you. Um, someone, someone wrote in with um, some feedback critique of the helper. You know, the the public notaries, oh, uh-huh. notaries for real life, saying, "Yep, they don't want people approaching them in real life anyway. I don't want to be approached <laughs> by strangers." It's opt in. I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't know if I made that clear. You cite like a notary. You don't. We're not just all notaries. We're not auto enrolled for notaries. You'd have to opt in and. Again, the half bakiness is I don't know what my incentives for opting in are because you're right. I may have the moral fiber necessary to be a public notary, helper.io. I do not. I know I have the constitutional personality to welcome that interaction on an ongoing basis. So you're not just automatically signed up. It's not 
um, it's not a social rule where everyone has to enroll in this social credit. It's like, if you want to participate in this and get your red jacket and your funny, I think this needs a funny hat is what I've decided. <laughs> the public notary needs distinctive hat, uh, headwear of some kind so you can see people in crowds. Um, but r- rest assured, this thing that will not happen does not necessarily <laughs> need to include you. I appreciate your concern. I don't want to have strangers coming up to you. Anyone who doesn't um, sign up for that. So having said that. All right. I think that and <laughs> thoroughly silly and enjoyable uh, set of listener feedback today. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about the funny hat. I feel like we should incentivize people to be helpers by giving them something cool. Like you get a sequin jacket. I think your definition of cool might need <laughs> updating. Maybe it's just so cool it's come back again. Let's take a break and we'll come <laughs> back and talk about news. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series. Miss Wong got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is a perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. All right. Um, kind of a slow news week for re- like for real a slow news week. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of re- a lot of ways we're seeing some of the some of the slowness of the the deep breath, like I said, is happening in a lot of different places. I, this is a go read and I don't have the byline in front of me because we don't have the link. Um, an interesting profile of Madeline McIntosh in The New York Times this week. You were you were pulling out some nuggets about um, I thought the one for Maybe they just go read that. But the <laughs> bite that she gave that you pulled out that I thought was interesting as well, talking about how crawdads 
is still their best-selling. Is it their best-selling book of the yes. year? Is that what it was? Penguin Random House's best-selling book of 2020 is still where the crawdads sing. And it is the piece. We'll drop the link into the show notes. Yeah. But um, the piece is called Bestsellers Sell the Best Because They're Bestsellers. It's a profile of Madeline McIntosh by Alexandra Alter for the New York Who Times. Who is the great... Um, be she covers publishing for the time she's great she, i mean most of the times in historically if you've ever heard us talk about an interesting new york times feature about books and reading it's an alter byline if you're on twitter a, a good, she used to be a, i'm sure she still is a good follow but one of the follows i actually kind of miss from twitter seeing what alexandra mm. alter was up to um but then the other piece of transparency was this is not one of those deals where they knew they had a hit on their hands when the thing came out they i think the phrase you used was the long tail of the outliers is the bread and the butter when mm-hmm. it comes to publishing, which we know, but I think it helps to be reminded of that, you know, that the publishing business model is different than the bestseller list. It's different than the books people are talking about on Twitter. It's different than what's winning awards. It's different than some controversy or something else like that, or what movie's being ad- what book is being adapted into a movie. Those things are all pieces of the pie. But the pie is these long tail things that sell way out of scale that subsidize so much of rest, the rest of the publishing industry does. Um, anyway, go read that. I guess, it, you know, the, the analog I was thinking, like this is a little inside baseball, but for traffic to our own website, it's not dissimilar in this regard, which mm-hmm. is SEO traffic, search traffic to like 11 places to find audiobooks may not on any given day be our most popular post that appears on the site, but over weeks and months and days crushes everything else just because it has that steady drumbeat that happens every day. It comes timeless. It just becomes, it raises the search rankings, which is sort of the equivalent of word of mouth for books and people. Mm-hmm. I never really thought about that. Word of, SEO is word of mouth for um, robots. Um, <laughs> show title. <laughs> show title. Um, <laughs> So I, you know, I, I think a lot of businesses work like this. You know, restaurants, they, you know, grocery stores, they may have mm-hmm. like these fancy things, but it's the bread and the milk. Um, movie stores, like there's the big, you know, new Marvel's movie, but it's the popcorn. Um, I don't know. I, f- I find that grounding to remember. There's a lot of noise, but the signal is kind of boring. It's kind of steady and boring in a lot of ways. Yeah, I. I remember being so surprised by that when I became a bookseller, Mm -hmm. you know, more than a decade ago now at Barnes and Noble and them talking about, you know, like we focus a lot on like the octagon table at the front of the store and the new release table. And, you know, like bestsellers are a big deal and people will come in looking for them. But like the very vast majority of the books that we sell come Mm -hmm. from the regular shelves and they come from backlist and things that aren't shiny and new, but that have been around for a while and that folks are still interested in Mm. Um, and that I I find that also to be very grounding I think that fact combined with like when you look back at bestsellers from 20 or 30 or 50 years ago we very rarely recognize those titles anymore is really uh it's a it is a nice kind of gravity of what happens in the world of books and that often I think most often like the big shinies that are spectacles of some sort um, at the time that they're published are not the thing like they are not the thing that sustains the ongoingness of the publishing industry when we were talking about um when harper lee died and then i think also when ghost had a watchman came out and we were just reminding ourselves of the phenomenon that is to kill a mockingbird i think we had don't don't quote me on the specifics but the rough to, to a first approximation is right like if the if publishers weekly or uh, nielsen included to Kill a Mockingbird in paperback fiction, 
bestsellers. It'd be like number four oh. every week, right? You yeah. know, it's something, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're also the ways that bestseller lists are written and created to hide the fact that, because we had that moment on the podcast too, I think I was like, what happened to Crawdads? It was like number one last <laughs> week and it sold 30,000 yeah, episodes and, and then it's off and then it was off. Well, you know why? Because there's time delimited. Like it's only eligible to be on front list fiction if it's been released within the last year, even though it's still not out in paperback. So what we think of as bestsellers, it's not, oh, actually, no, this came up in the context of the annotated we did about how mm-hmm. manufactured the bestseller yep. list was. So I don't know, helpful to remember, doesn't really matter. People still are reading Crawdads, don't love it. It's not going to kill you. There we are. <laughs> um, you dropped, why don't you, t- the, the, the headline for the pub- next publisher's weekly article, you know, as we get these quarterly reports from print sales, what are print books doing? Surprisingly strong year of book mm. sales, says Jim Milliot at Publishers Weekly. Um, unit sales of print books were up 6.4% in the first nine months of 2020. Uh, this can be largely attributed to some big summer bestsellers, that spring and summer surge in interest um, in books on social justice and racial justice, um, and one of the pandemic side effects of like ongoing and increased demand by parents for children's books, both for educational purposes and entertainment. So mm. these numbers are according to BookScan. Again, print units for the nine months that ended October 3rd, 2020, over the same time period for 2019. Um, To get into those numbers a little bit, unit sales for juvenile nonfiction jumped by 29.1%. Yeah, led by the big preschool workbook, which sold 649,000 print copies (laughs) in that time period. And my first Learn to Write workbook, which sold 595,000 copies. I mean, I, in a way, we don't even think of those as, it is weird to say, we don't even think of them about them as books. Like, those are published by the educational arms of mm-hmm. publishers. And I don't even know who, but there's like also big publishers that we never talk about on the show because they don't publish the kind of things where we consider you're like, if you're a reader, you're not caring about the learn to write preschool work. It's just, it is a book. Yes, of course, it's a codex, blah, blah, blah. But it does, I think this is kind of a transition to the next article we want to talk about too. Is that helping the world of books and reading and publishing? Yes and no. Like when we think about the publishing and book world, we're not thinking about preschool um, books. So that, that huge inflation of demand props up a number like this, but then hides, at least from a very top level, the weakness everywhere that's not Mm -hmm. that really is what we're finding. And this is another New York Times article um, by Elizabeth Harris talking about how bad it really is for independent bookstores right now. Just a couple of pull quotes. I think the whole thing is worth reading if you you can or use one of your 10 free ones. I'm not even sure. I subscribe to the Times, so I I don't know what the current permeable wall is. ABA served members in July, uh, surveyed members in July, and among the approximately 400 respondents, a third said their sales were down 40% or more for the year. Um, Sarah McNally of McNally, McNally Jackson Book said her sales are unimaginably bad. All six shops combined are now bringing less than the Soho location would by itself in a typical month. Um, I guess... 
I would have certainly guessed they're down. Would you have guessed 40% across the board, Rebecca, at this point? I, I don't know how, how that would fall into the envelope of, of um, expectation for you for the sales of a independent I, aggregate sales for independent bookstores. I would not have guessed that so many, that a full third of ABA members said their sales were down 40% or more for the mm-hmm. year. Um my sample is small and probably skewed of the right. like you know booksellers and bookstore owners that I know and that I know well enough to have some idea of what's going on in their businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I as always, I want to know about the confounding factors like of those that are down this much. Like, where are their locations and what kind of online sales did they have existing before? Yeah. Like, what was their you know online retail setup before this happened? Were they able to um, to weather it or to adapt to online sales um, seamlessly or not? That's that is a big. It's a big hit. number. It's a big hit to take. Um, you know, one of the other notes in this piece is that booksellers are hoping that big sales from uh, Barack Obama's first presidential memoir, A Promised Land, which comes out in November, um, will boost their sales. Um, it's a big book and it has a high price tag. Uh, so that, mm. you know, that could be helpful. That's, it, I mean, it's destined to be an automatic bestseller. Um, so hope that could be a thing. And of course, we're going into the holiday season, which is yeah. a big question mark and it's the time period where a lot of retail you know it's called black friday for a reason (laughs) like you know makes up the money that they've lost elsewhere in the year and gets back into the black so um i think if you're a person who cares about like sort of the overall um health of the book buying economy and the health of independent bookstores as they contribute to that if you have the means to do so this is a time to start really if you haven't been doing it already it's a time to start thinking about like how are um how are you investing in the stores that you want to have continue existing um and i think now that we've been through the it feels to me like we're in a place with covid where i'm seeing bookstores figure out ways to reopen that are relatively safe um and you know, over the weekend, I had a private book shopping appointment at an indie in Richmond. They're selling them for 50 minutes at a time, and then they have 10 minutes to clean and sanitize stuff after you've been in there. And Oh, the talk money... to me about this. I saw you in yeah, Nelson Amanda Instagram about this. Yeah, yeah, it was great. So Chop Suey Books here in, in Richmond, wonderful independent bookstore, sells new and used titles. They're doing, on the weekends, they're doing private book shopping. Um, it's you and a, up to one other person that you bring with you. Um, it was $30 to reserve the time, and the $30 gets credited toward whatever you purchase. Um, you have to wear your masks. You sanitize your hands when you go in um, by virtue of the fact that it's like one staff member who's there and mm. you and maybe you're one guest. You're pretty socially distanced. Mm. And it was – I came home and told Bob, like, it was remarkably normal feeling or, like, as normal as a thing can feel right now. Like, we're all used to wearing masks, and we're used to being in places that if we're out in the world, the places don't have as many people in them and it was lovely you know like to um, walk around a bookstore with a good friend and you know I know the owner of the store his name is Ward and so to be able to be like how is this thing selling and what are you reading lately and Amanda and I were holding up titles and talking to each other you know like Mm. doing that thing that you do when you're in a bookstore with a friend um, it was really nice and it did feel um, it did feel safe you know I think we're far enough into this that surface um, transmission is not like the big concern anymore. So it wasn't like, oh, my God, we can't touch books. What's going to happen? It just felt very 
nice and it was a cool way to be able to support them i think also a smart setup on their end of like you have to pay to reserve your slot um if you mm. for some reason don't show up they get to keep your 30 dollars. and if you go um hopefully you're buying some books that that $30 is going towards. So um, it was and it was nice just to like discover books, which especially in our line of work, it's not often that I just can noodle around somewhere and be like, oh, I haven't heard of this before. Or this had maybe been on my radar, but I haven't picked it up yet. And it was fun to just, Mm. you know, to just browse. And I came home with I didn't go in with a list. I came home with five books that were all just decisions I made at the moment. And it was really nice. I was furiously writing down questions while you were, while you were okay, talking. That good. was a follow-up about. Um, one, do you have a sense from our, our friend Ward over there, like how of the available slots to privately shop, like what's the fill rate? Oh, so yes, I didn't ask him, but I looked online because I ah. was when I was going to Instagram it, I was like, oh, should I drop the link to this? Mm. And when we were there, it was October 11th, um, and they – Again, we're only offering appointments on Saturdays and Sundays, but everything had been sold except for like one slot on October 31st. So that was kind of related to my second question. If they're pretty full, they should raise their their minimum, their cover charge. It's like a cover charge. I really like that idea. Mm-hmm. I think it, raise it up, Ward, 50. Yeah. 50, 50, raise it up. That's two hardbacks. Not even. Yeah. I would have committed to, I mean, I spent more than, like I would have committed to 50 bucks for yeah, no, an I, hour that, yeah, in a bookstore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my, that was my follow-up one. Oh, you had, you said you had 50 minutes. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, you get 50. You, give me two things you bought. I bought the new Ali Brosh book, Solutions and Other Problems. Mm. And, um, oh, Oliver Sacks' The Last Interview. I love that. Which love I was going to text you about. I didn't know. I figured you were aware of it. I didn't know if you had read I it. I think I've consumed the complete Sacks at this point. Um, okay. So anyway, there we go. All right, let's do a sponsor break. That was a nice anecdote from out there in the real world. Today's episode is brought to you by Song of the Silks Realms by Judy Eyelid. Shi Wei is a talented young musician who was orphaned at a young age. Her sole family is a kindly uncle, but then her uncle is killed, and she is, of course, devastated. With no family and no patron, Shi Wei is facing the possibility of a lifetime of servitude playing the chin. Then one night, she is unexpectedly called to perform for the enigmatic Duke Meng. He surprises Shi Wei further with an irresistible offer. Serve as a musician in residence at his manor for one year, and he'll set her free of her indenture. But the Duke's motives become increasingly more sus when he and Shu barely survive an attack by a nightmarish monster. It's like, what, <laughs> what's going on here? So this book is a sweeping epic romanticy that follows a talented young musician who is swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke. And who doesn't want to be swept away to the celestial realm by an enigmatic young Duke? She's living all our dreams, honestly. Make sure to check out the new book. And thanks again to Song of the Six Realms by Judy Eileen for sponsoring this episode. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
potpourri time. I, I have to admit, I found this new sadder than I would have guessed. Mm. Bill Bryson says he's retiring, which he's older than I thought. He's been writing a long time. He's written a bunch. Also, the Brysonian mode is uh, has a lot to do with travel historically, and mm-hmm. it's harder now, right? It gets COVID and blah, 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 for sure, but he's older, and traveling is not as much fun, and I can imagine he's kind of coming to the end. He says he's really putting it away, and he's enjoyed traveling, but now he's having fun just reading for pleasure and doing his own thing, and um, of course, has written more than enough to, to have a great life. But, you know, having the possibility of a book by a favorite author still to come is one of the great reading pleasures, right? It's one, it's one of the compensations of caring about books as a central concern in your life. So I don't know, maybe, maybe he'll write a memoir. Maybe he'll write stuff Mm. that's easier to write sitting around reading other books. Maybe it'll be harder for him than he anticipates not to have the project mind spinning at all times. But, um, as a big Bryson fan, uh, I was. I thought that was notable. He's not dead, of course, but like from a reader's point of view, he sort of is. If you stop writing, kind of is in a weird way. Like it's kind of the same, you know. Like your relationship from that author is frozen in time, I guess, right? Because mm-hmm. there isn't going to be new work to be coming out. And it, that's it was a Guardian piece, and that was the headline. Like that's interesting to me. That just yeah. What other? How many authors out there saying they're done writing would get a Guardian headline? And I think it's fewer than you might think. And that Bryson made the cut is interesting. Yeah, and I think, you know, we don't treat authors like sports figures where everybody no. has to announce their retirement. Because <laughs> um, right. so you could come of, back tomorrow or you could still right. be working on something. Yeah, like most of the time they just, you know, don't publish any new books. And mm-hmm. then eventually we figure out that that was the end of that. I, I feel like this is bittersweet. I am not as attached to Bryson, I think, as you are, but I do have some wonderful reading memories um, from his work. And I like this line in his statement that whatever time is left to me on this planet, I'd like to spend it indulging myself rather than yeah. going out and trying to cover new territory. And I don't know, I kind of relate to that. Like He also acknowledges that he doesn't know how much of it is pandemic mm-hmm. related, but this has been a clarifying time in a lot of ways. And I relate to perpetual project brain, like what you were just talking about of will he be able to, <laughs> to turn that off. But this has made me think about like what would happen if I directed the project brain to like just stuff I want to do for myself, you know, yeah. like, and I hope that there's some of that for, for Bill Bryson and that he gets to just enjoy and maybe just take in the experience without having to think about um, filtering it or turning it into a book or an essay or, or whatever. Um, yeah, well, it maybe he'll think, pop up on other My things, other like, note in thinking about a retirement announcement and how it feels like from a reader's point of view, it's equivalent to them dying where they were still writing I was like, the nice thing about a retirement in sports is you get a chance to celebrate that athlete while they're still alive. Mm -hmm. Where with authors and other figures, so often it's you wait until you die for the obituary and everyone tweets their favorite David Bowie lyric, right? Or something, (laughs) which is fine. I get that. That's fine. But wouldn't it be great to have, you know, like I was thinking about who's out there that hasn't retired. We haven't heard from a long time, but also isn't dead. And the one that jumped to mind is Cormac McCarthy. Mm. You know, he's out, he's alive. He hasn't written a new book in a long time. At this point, looking at his age and productivity and haven't heard much from him, he's probably de facto retired. But it would have been cool to have a moment. And again, so they can come out of retirement. I don't care. But a moment for these authors where they don't have to win the Nobel. They don't have to die. They don't have to get embroiled in controversy. They don't have to turn 100. Where we could be like, 
yeah, you know, for people who like this author or people who might be interested in this, this is a this is a chance to celebrate the corpus and the life and the work for that people who care about it. I thought that was like maybe maybe that should be a thing like publicly announce you're retiring. We won't hold it against you if you've got a yeah. book about Chile or something that you're you're, that's, <laughs> you're percolating on. But like I, I think there's that celebratory moment could be channeled in a positive yeah, way for, I, for people. I really like that, and this got me thinking about. Um, the 20th anniversary edition of Kitchen Confidential that yeah, I have right, that has yeah. Bourdain's handwritten annotations in it and an updated introduction. And I think for Bryson, especially somebody who, who has had such a long career, and he does have this, you know, sort of like cranky old man persona <laughs> that comes through in some of the writing. And there are pieces, there are like elements of that that haven't aged terribly well. No. And I think that his pers- like my from what you know his work that I've read I think he he has grown up and adapted and evolved his thinking on things and it would be in- I would you know welcome um an annotated updated edition yeah. of A Walk in the Woods or right. some updated you know some updated editions of the great funny travel books but that acknowledge new cultural norms and new ways of talking about things it would be cool to see how his thinking has evolved on that like I I love that Kitchen Confidential edition and seeing Bourdain's thoughts after 20 years on one of the works that was really formative in his career was super interesting. And I'd love to see that from Bryson and from, you know, some of the other authors mentioned in this Guardian piece who have also announced their retirement, like, you know, Philip Roth said in 2012 that he was done. Uh, And certainly his work, like how it stands up to the test of time or how we read some of his work through the lens of 2020, um, there's a lot of room for shift and change there. Annie Prue mm-hmm. said that Barkskins would be her last novel because like she doesn't have any endurance for the publishing machine anymore. The interviews and book signings and tours and PR and, and all of that. But like Annie Prue annotating some of her earlier work would be super fascinating. Shipping, and, no, shipping news revisited would be really interesting yeah. to see. Yeah. Anyway, I, again, I think the Bryson work there, he's got a a lot of books. So it's not one of those authors where you get two and that's it. And it, it's kind of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had to ask me to pick, um, I'm going with at home, um, a walk in the woods and a brief history of nearly everything for my, uh, Bill Bryson, okay. Mount Rushmore. So, uh, yeah, in fact, the Bryson thing is interesting, but the, the, the idea of using the retirement as a moment was really the thing I, that got I my wheels that. turning. Yeah. Yeah. I would love more author retirement announcements and then we can celebrate them here. Um, news, where do you want to go? It's kind of a, these are all interesting, if not commentable yeah. in a meaningful way. I maybe. Think- there's a piece worth reading that we can drop the link to in the LA Times that looks at um, the surge in book adaptations that have been snatched up by Hollywood this year or book rights that have been snatched up by Hollywood for adaptations. And we weren't imagining that there was more news than usual this year. Um, The piece goes through the frame of uh, Ruman Alam and Leave the World Behind and tells the story of that novel getting sold um, for a Netflix adaptation they're talking, um, the, let's see, the piece is reported by uh, Ryan Fodner. He's a staff writer at the LA Times. Um, goes through talking to Alam's uh, agent, Michelle Weiner, at, who's the head of Creative Artists Agency um, at their books department, um, who handled this auction. And she notes in the piece that this year, um, CAA has packaged and sold 175 book titles for film and TV. Shit. 
<laughs> right? Wow. 175. That's this one agency for film and TV. They've packaged and sold. That's five times their volume during the same period last year. Uh. And they're, you know, talking about some, I mean, other interesting things that are sprinkled in here is that MGM bought the rights to Andy Weir's upcoming novel, Project Hail Mary, with Ryan Gosling set to star in it. Um, Century City-based agency. They sold Britt Bennett's bestseller, The Vanishing Half, to HBO after a bidding war. Uh, all kinds of stuff is getting picked up. And it's, um, you know, a bright spot for these talent agencies, but also looking at, you know, we're sort of burning through all of the existing television that had been produced right now while we're while everybody's in quarantine and new things aren't uh, being made as readily. Um, but there's been a lot of interest in books and a lot of interest in having, you know, high quality new adaptations. So if you want, it's a it's not a long, long read, but it'll take you, I don't know, 10 minutes um, to read this piece. And the- by uh, Ryan Fodner, I think. Fodner, Fodner, F-A-U-G-H-N-D-E-R. Sorry, Ryan, about your name pronunciation. Yeah, and that this flood is related to the pandemic, Um, that the floodgates opening on these kinds of deals is tied to to the pandemic in some interesting ways. But I felt so validated of like, we have not imagined it, that there were a ton of announcements this year. There really were. Um, And if CAA's pattern of five times more this year than last year is indicative of what's happening with other agencies that represent authors who have properties to sell for adaptation, then like, oh boy, (laughs) we're in for a lot. Look, I've called the top of the adaptation bubble like 11 times at this point. So do not trust me. It's like, there's some joke of, of, um, you know, uh, financial analysts that they've, they've called three out of the last two recessions. Like they're always (laughs) saying the recession's coming. Um, But I have to say, I mean, that's a that's a lot, a lot, and there's already a lot coming. There's still a lot coming out now, and there hasn't been production for six months. Like, I don't quite. And read the article for yourself. I think you'll find it interesting if you like this show. I don't quite follow the causality of why, because there is a pandemic, we're buying more rights. I, I don't. I, I'm missing something about that. So that's interesting to me. There is a, there's a, we can do this, so let's do, we can't be making stuff, so let's buy stuff mm-hmm. that we can make in the future. Also, I really don't know what, I mean, there, the right, buying rights has a lot of different flavors, options versus production commitments versus so on and so forth. So it could be a lot of more of deals for lower amounts of money, right? It could be different kinds of structures. I'd be curious what the doll, the raw dollar figure year over year, has that changed five times as well? Or are people buying, things are going to be an eight-part miniseries that shows up on Amazon Prime, which is different than buying The Martian for a $250 million production for a feature film. I'd be curious to know, within that raw number of deals, what's the product mix like and what the dollar attached to them are. So Ryan, person who I can't pronounce your last name, <laughs> um, if you write that piece, I will definitely link to it and mispronounce your name again. Um, that's our show. That's our show. I'm I calling think so. it. Okay. Is that fair? Yeah. Do you do you protest? I don't protest. Next, our next bonus episode. We're we're catching. Speaking of adaptations, we're catching up with three that we've had our eye on. We've watched. We we have watched various pieces of them. It's going to be Enola Holmes, um, and then the first 
at least the first episode of Little Fires Everywhere in High Fidelity, though I've watched all of High Fidelity. I've mm-hmm. not seen any of Little Fires Everywhere. It could be that Michelle and I blast through that and I have them all <laughs> under my belt. Where are you in the, the cycle for having I, done all those already? I watched all of High Fidelity, but like months ago. So I'm definitely going to rewatch the first yeah. episode, maybe rewatch a couple more. And I watched all of Little Fires Everywhere over the summer. So I think my plan actually is I've never seen the original High Fidelity movie. What? what? I know. <laughs> I know. Mm. It just was one of those gaps in cultural stuff that happened to me. So I'm going to watch the original High Fidelity over the weekend and revisit some of those episodes too. Okay. Um, so if you want to have that in your back pocket when it's time for us to talk about it, you know, watch along with us, shoot us an email podcast at bookride.com for feedback of all kinds, but especially if you've got a better idea than we do about how to make this damn podcast on the day after the election, we're open to, uh, ideas. Um, as always, you can find show notes at bookriot.com slash listen, Rebecca, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Have a good one.